0: We are in Isaiah chapter 7 this morning as we continue our survey of the book of Isaiah. What does trust look like? Certainly we can come up with definitions of trust. One says, trust is a firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. Firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or or strength of someone or something. I, I would suggest to you that trust goes beyond belief, that it is grounded in belief, but it shows itself in response to that, that there's, there's something that happens in response to that belief, that we show our dependence, we, we actually believe it. Last summer, we, uh, we visited our son uh, near Juneau, Alaska, and we were hiking in a pretty remote area, and at one point, the, the trail stops at, at an embankment. It's probably only about 10 feet or so, but then there was a, a large creek And you were kind of at the end there was this the creek wasn't necessarily real deep but it was alaska so it was real cold and it was deep enough that no none of us were going to try to climb down there and go across it but then there was this long cable the steel cable strung that was across now this is not it this picture don't i would not there's no way but there was a long cable with a cab you know that hung from a pulley beneath it, and you cranked the pulley, and you could fit about four people in there and crank yourself out over. It it took trust. I mean, it, it looked like it had been there a while. looked like it had been well used, and so yeah, you felt somewhat reliable. This kind of stuff, I don't know how people do. A bunch of sticks and rope um, going across something like that, but that's that's trust. That's a, a belief in the reliability of something that actually causes you to step out and walk across it. And yes, we did make it to the other side and back again. But I want to talk to you about trust because it, it's, it's active. It says that it is, it is, I believe that this is strong enough. And trust is, is at the heart of following Jesus Christ, right? As, as, as those who have put our trust in Jesus Christ. There's both the trust that says I believe that Jesus did what he said he did, that he died on the cross, that he rose again, and I am turning from my sin and believing in him, so I'm trusting him for my salvation from my sin. But then there's also, as believers in Jesus Christ, a life of walking in trust, of seeking to believe what he says and obey his commands and follow after him and and wait when he says to wait. And he warns us of suffering and trials and even persecution in following him, and that requires an ongoing trust. Jesus, at the end of one of his parables in Luke 18, said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The, the latter part of that, we're good, with, that there's many times more, that there's blessing in following him. But the call in that is, There may be a lot that we have to to shed in in the process. There may be things that we have to set aside to come to that place of saying, Jesus is worth more than anyone or anything, and I can trust him. I can stake my hope in him. I can live in that trust moment by moment, willing to incur whatever cost might come with that. Am I really willing to forsake things in this life and deny self and follow him? This question of trust is really central to what we're studying this morning, Isaiah 7, 8, and the very beginning of chapter 9. The central character in this portion of Isaiah, besides the prophet himself, is King Ahaz of Judah. King Ahaz, his nation, is being threatened with attack. Not only threatened, as we'll see as we read on, there's actual attack going on. And the question that faces the king is... Will you trust Yahweh? If if this is what Yahweh, if this is what the Lord instructs you to do, will you trust him? Will you stand firm in that or not? And for a king, it's really, will you surrender all of the, the strategies and tactics that you might ordinarily run to? Not that diplomacy or military, that there's anything wrong with that. There's use for all those things, but, but not if they replace dependence on God. And what, what King Ahaz is being challenged with is, will you lay these things down and will you wait on God to deliver you as he is promising to do? That's when it gets complicated. When you know that you're facing attack and you claim to believe in the God of Judah, and yet you're being told, sit back, wait rest in God. That's what what Ahaz is facing. Does he really trust God? And so Isaiah 7, we won't read everything in in the two little two-plus chapters we're going to go through, but we'll read a lot of it. And we'll start in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, just to set the scene. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. All right, let's set the stage. Ahaz is the son of Jotham, the grandson of Uzziah, There's overlap in their reigns. In in Kings and Chronicles, we get, you know, so-and-so took the throne and reigned for so many years, and there's some overlap in this. We know that from what we talked about. Uzziah ends poorly with leprosy during that time. Jotham is, is already on the throne, even though Ahaz is still alive. Jotham is not a good king. He is one of the evil kings of Judah. He does not do well. And, and the presumption is that Ahaz probably at some point ascends to being functional leader in, in place of Jotham, who doesn't seem to be doing much for the nation at that point. So there's some overlap in terms of timing. Um, The other thing that you should gather from this passage that's important to see, just our our little geography, is that we're talking Syria and Israel. We've been talking about the Assyrian Empire, which is largely to the north and east, and it is spreading and growing. Syria is a separate country from the Assyrian Empire. Northern area, just above Israel, if you will, the northern part. So you're talking northern areas around the Sea of Galilee and just above Syria and Israel are the two countries that are focused on here. When he uses that word Ephraim, it's just another word that's synonymous with Israel. So, So what's being described here is that these two nations to the north of Judah, Syria and Israel are poised to attack Judah. They are coming south to attack. In the background of all this is the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire is already on the doorstep of Syria and Israel, and preparing to attack them, preparing to just sort of swallow them up. So smaller countries do what smaller countries do. They form alliances. They they, they try to get strength in numbers, and so Syria and Israel form an alliance. And presumably what they're doing here, and it's not explicit in Scripture, but presumably the case is they want Judah to be part of this. They want to have three nations that stand up against the Assyrian Empire. And so they are poised now to attack Judah and to try to bring Judah. in. What we gather happened is the diplomacy didn't work and that Ahaz was not willing to join this alliance. And so now we're going to make you by force join us in this way. All right, so let me read on Isaiah 7, uh, 3 through 9. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. That's key. He's saying this is not going to happen. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is resident. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people and the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Isaiah sent to meet King Ahaz. Ahaz is out looking at conduits, presuming, again, that this is a a city, Jerusalem, as most cities in that time would have been built. Try to build on higher ground, if you can, for defensive posture, which, as you know, the flow of water, gravity, the higher ground, you you need conduits and other things to go underground to get in to provide pools and wells and things so that you can have a water supply. So, So we'll give Ahaz the benefit of the doubt here that he's doing what a king does, the city that's now in a defensive posture and trying to inspect the water and see that they are protected in some way, and Ahaz comes to him, and he says, I know what's happening here. We all know Israel and Syria, they are, they are threatening, they are, they are coming, they will not succeed, and you just need to trust the Lord. I mean, that's, a, that's the heart of his message is Ahaz, who's got to be thinking kind of like a a diplomat and a general and all the things that come into play at this point. Isaiah comes and says, calm down. Don't be afraid. Just take a breath here, Ahaz, which is really remarkable language when you see him saying, calm down. Don't fear. I mean, this is the prophet speaking confidently from the word of God and able to say to the king, just take it easy, man. It's going to be okay. God's in control. Wait. Wait. On him. Also says that he brought his son. We're going to get some names that keep coming up in these passages this morning. And this is the first one, Sheer Jashib, which means a remnant will return. Ahaz, meet my son, a remnant will return. It's just another way of, of adding to the picture here of in God's plan, it's not going to happen. God will preserve for himself a remnant. And so you need not fear. Don't be foolish. Stand firm. Because in fact, if you're not firm, you'll be crushed. You will not be firm at all. This is the king. This is the one who needs to follow the Lord and stand and trust in the Lord. And he's been told that strategically, he knows what what we see here, Israel and Syria want to replace him because he's not gone along. They want to put their own king in and then Judah will cooperate with them. And all Isaiah says is God has said, this is not going to happen. You need to stand firm in your faith and wait. You must listen. God is so gracious to Ahaz at this point that he says to Isaiah, tell him to ask for a sign. I will confirm to him this truth. Understand that most signs throughout scripture are not meant to create faith. It's not the sign alone. It is the truth that ultimately gives the faith. The sign confirms the truth. It adds confirmation, authenticity, if you will. And so this this sign is not that he's going to give him is not some immediate magical sign of some sort, but he says Ahaz should ask for a sign. Ahaz gives this answer in verse 12 that is nothing more than fake piety. I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. All right, this is an issue of obedience because at this point God has said, tell him to ask for a sign, and he's saying no. And, and, and we'll find out as we go through this. The reason he says no is he's already got plans in the works for what he wants to do to try to escape any problems with Syria and Israel. He's already working through this in his own mind, what he wants to do. He is not interested in waiting for some sign. So look at Isaiah's answer, verse 13. Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, that would be the, Ahaz would be on the throne in the line of David. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, king of Assyria. Now, we know this prophecy, most of it anyway, because we, at Advent season, we tend to go here to Isaiah 7 and the sign of Emmanuel. It's a prophecy that I would suggest to you has a a partial near fulfillment that would have been in the lifetime of Ahaz, the confirming sign, but it's a prophecy that we know from Matthew one twenty three is ultimately fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. You shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. But at this time, roughly 735 BC, what the prophecy is indicating to Ahaz is there is some presumably unmarried virgin who will marry, who will conceive, and who will have a son, and by the time that son has reached some age of being able to discern good from evil, and it doesn't specify this particular, sometimes we talk about the age of accountability and that age, it doesn't give us details here, but he says at some point as that child matures and is discerning good from evil, this will come true. You will see that the very nations that are threatening you now will be deserted. There has to be an aspect of this, and, and, and I, I, don't, I can't tell you because I don't think Scripture is clear as to who that child exactly is that, that is born, but it is something that Isaiah is able to concretely say to Ahaz, in time, you will see this, and then when you see it, much like the prophecies in the New Testament when they look back and go, oh, Isaiah said this about Emmanuel and the light comes on, the light will come on and you will go, God did say all this, God did promise all this again, I, I would say to you, that's the thing about God working through a sign like this. The goal is not to convince Ahaz. If you want proof of that, you go back to, the, um, to Moses and the Egyptian pharaoh, and there were immediate signs done in the pharaoh's presence, and they never produced genuine belief in him. They produced temporary hesitation and pause, but none of those things were meant to, 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 to promote belief, they were meant to say, this is the power of God, and you better know what you're standing up against. And this is Ahaz being told, here is something that you can see that will show you that God has kept his word. There's a a chance that Ahaz balks at this, at least partly because of timing. Because what it suggests to him is, This isn't some immediate thing. I've got to wait till the virgin marries and conceives and has the child and the child is old old enough to discern good and evil to even see this sign fulfilled. And so probably adds in Ahaz's mind to his case of, I'm not listening to this. This is 735, maybe 734 BC. Damascus, the capital of Syria, fell in 732. So two, three years later, exactly what God said. This will not happen because these two nations will come to nothing. The first piece in the puzzle, happens in 732, and then Israel is captured and deported in 722, just 10 years after that. And and, and the the attack on Israel began even before 722. It's completed at that point in time. All that to say, the sign that he gives is fulfilled exactly as God has promised, but Ahaz, at this point, looking forward, will not trust God, will not stand firm. And we know the the backstory to all this from 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. If you want to read that, you can make a note of that. But 2 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles 28 gives us the history of of what Ahaz really did when he began to hear about Syria and Israel. Syria did attack. At at this point in Isaiah, it says that they had not yet mounted an attack. At some point, they, they do mount an attack. There are thousands of lives of men in the army of Judah who are killed in that. There are thousands more of people of Judah who are taken captive by the army of the Israelites. That peace is thwarted because as they are bringing all of their captives back north to Israel they are confronted by another prophet not Isaiah but a prophet who says you understand you're taking your Jewish brethren captive remember this is Judah and Israel both all all Jews all originally part of the the same house if you will and the the prophet says you will not go unpunished for doing this if you're going to take your own brothers captive you will be punished for this and so the captives are, are released at that point Ahaz though um that didn't happen, the release that it didn't happen because Ahaz did the right thing. What we also know, by the way, is 2 Kings 16:5 says Israel and Syria attacked but could not conquer Judah. They surrounded Jerusalem. They, they caused pain, they caused suffering, they took lives, they took captives, but they were not able to conquer Jerusalem, much as God had promised. And again, you'd like to think, well, maybe Ahaz somehow got it together here. He did not. Instead of listening to Isaiah and trusting God for deliverance, Ahaz had the bright idea of going to the great empire of Assyria. He gathered up gold and silver. He took some envoys. He sent them to the king of the Assyrian empire and said, you save me. You rescue me. 2 Kings sixteen seven. This is the message from Ahaz to the king of the Assyrian empire. I am your servant and your son. I am as bowed down as I can be at this point. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Put this all in context. You've got Isaiah saying, trust God. God is ready to deliver you. He will deliver you. And you have Isaiah saying, now I got a better idea. I'm going to go to that ever trustworthy king of the Assyrian empire and I am going to pay him for protection. I am going to think about the irony in this. I am going to pay the king of the Assyrian empire to do what he's really already planning to do, which is to attack Syria and Israel. I want him to go in and stop them and beat them up. So I'm just giving him extra gold and silver with which to do that. So that way he'll like me and he'll never do the same thing to me. Ahaz completely mocks the word of the Lord and goes and throws himself at the mercy of the greatest terror in the land and says, help me. God has already said, I will help you. I will even give you a sign to confirm my help to you. And Ahaz runs. This is despicable treason by a king of Judah. To say to God, not only will I not trust you, not only will I not stand on what you have said, I will not do what you tell me to do. I have my own plan. And I'm going to follow that because ultimately I think I know better than you. And I'm going to do what I think is best for my people. God could not have been more explicit. He gives him the sign of a remnant shall return. He gives him the sign of Emmanuel. I am, I'm with you. I'm assuring you. And Ahaz just needed to trust, and he didn't. As believers in Jesus Christ, you and I face this challenge. I think a similar challenge to Ahaz, and you face it in your own heart, and you face it in your ministry to your brothers and sisters in Christ, where there is this active clash that goes on in your heart between knowing what God's word says... Trusting what God's word says, obeying what God's word says versus I just want to do it my way. <laughs> I know, I know what God's word promises, I know what it says, but I just, I want to feel it and see it and control it in some way. I, I just, I'm, I'm used to doing it this way. I don't want to give up whatever this area of my life is, or, or I don't want to to just let go of this fear and just wait on God. I want to be able to control something. Ever had any of those moments? I know, I know this is what it says, but I really am having a hard time not just believing it, but actually following it. Ahaz refuses. He would not be patient. Had Judah stood and waited, God said, I will deliver you. It's not like Ahaz doesn't have some history to go with this. I mean, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, he could go back to, I don't know, let's go Joshua, marching people around Jericho and God delivering the city into their hands. Or let's go with the, the shepherd boy and his stones going up against the giant and the Philistine army who says, I'm, I'm gonna trust the Lord in this. I believe the Lord has called me to this and will give me the victory in all of this. So it's not like Ahaz hasn't seen and heard that God does amazing, miraculous things, and yet he trusted Assyria when he was supposed to be trusting God. So here's what I'll, I'll give you to think about as you, you ponder this this week. I am prone to trust blank, fill that in, when I should be trusting God. I am prone to stand here when I should be firm in my faith and trusting God. When the, when the job is in jeopardy or the dreams in life are shattered, I, am, I turn to blank for hope and help. The, 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 the thing to remember here is Ahaz has got this sort of, perfunctory kind of acknowledgement of God when he gives that whole, I'm, I'm not going to ask the Lord for a sign. I'm, I'm sure Ahaz would, would be the guy to say, I'll pray about it. Yeah, yeah, we'll trust God. And then just go right back to panicking and shaking in fear and doing what he wanted to do. And that, that's where I think you and I can struggle. That our trust in God is more than just sort of pious claims or token prayers, but that we, we are willing to, as he said in verse nine, stand firm in faith, and trust him, and believe his ways. I suspect for Ahaz, it probably only made matters worse when the Assyrian Empire did swallow up Syria just a couple of years later, because in his mind, instead of seeing that as God fulfilling his promise, that was, (laughs) look at me, my deal worked. The Assyrian Empire took care of Syria, wrecked their capital of Damascus, and so there, I'm right. God's word said otherwise. Look at verse 18. This is what happens now if you don't. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. God's message to Ahaz at this point is the very thing that you have put your trust in will in that day fill your land and swarm over you, and the thing that you trusted for safety will suddenly be standing there poised to destroy you. The picture that he gives, he speaks of Assyrian Empire and Egypt. Those are sort of the two polar opposites. Egypt doesn't end up figuring into this historically as much as obviously the Assyrian Empire, but his point is to say, you put your trust in the Assyrian Empire... You can be sure, Ahaz, that there will come a day when the Assyrian army will be like like insects who are swarming over this land and they will be in every cleft of the rock, every crevice, they will be everywhere and you will go to sleep at night and you will hear the buzzing of that sound and it will terrify you because you will realize that you are surrounded and they are just getting prepared to attack you. It's a terrifying image that he gives to Ahaz. And it's meant to contrast with Emmanuel, God with us. Rest in that, God present with you. He is your God, rest in him, stand firm on him. Otherwise, what will be with you is the surrounding of an enemy that will be poised to destroy you. Psalm 27, one David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I'm pretty sure he has had the capacity to, to get one of his priests to come and unroll the scroll and read the Psalms to him and, and speak truth to him and try to encourage him. And if he had read Psalm 27, it's a majestic lesson about putting your trust in Yahweh, even in moments of great fear, of, of resting in and hiding in his shelter and being concealed by the cover of his tent. But Psalm 27 also says, you need to wait. The last verse in Psalm 27 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That's a four-letter word that most of us struggle with, isn't it? Wait. And that's what what Isaiah fundamentally had to do. God's not just going to, like tomorrow, it'll all be done. You're going to need to just wait on him and trust in him. And that's the same thing for you and I. I want it now, Lord. I I, I I've waited. I've waited long enough. I don't want to wait. I want to fix this. I want to I want to get into this. I want to do whatever it takes. I don't want to give up this relationship, or I I I don't want to give up this area of sin, or I I I know I have this fear, and so I'm going to respond to it this way. And we don't wait. By refusing to wait on the Lord, what Ahaz does is he takes Jude and puts them right in the Assyrian Empire's crosshairs. He sets them up for disaster. Rest of chapter seven describes the enemies of Judah as being like a razor that God uses to shave Judah's hair to to humiliate them so that their hair is all removed. And then he uses a farming illustration and essentially says the land will be so overrun by enemies that it will be stripped of all of its crops and all that will be left are some cattle. And and frankly, the people, it will be so desolate that there will be enough people gone that the, the few cattle that are left will be enough to provide sufficient milk for the nation there will be hardly anything there at this point. That's what's going on in the rest of of chapter seven. Chapter eight, then he begins to expand on this judgment that is coming and and now takes the message to the people. And he will introduce in chapter eight, another name, a third name of a son who is born, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For those of you who are getting out the baby book of names and thinking, (laughs) Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It's the last time I'll say that, it's the last time I'll get it right, so we'll just say the translation of that is speeding to the plunder and hurrying to the spoil. Ahaz, let me introduce you to my son, who's a picture of speeding to plunder and hurrying to come and pillage your nation. That's because he's talking about Assyria at this point, and and the enemies, and how the Assyrian invasion, the the idea is we want to plunder everything, we want to take your wealth, and that's the warning that he gives here. So chapter seven, talking largely to Ahaz, chapter eight, th- this is now the bigger message. That's why it's a large tablet with common characters. It says in one, it's now a message that is witnessed by others. And it is to say that the guilt is not just on Ahaz, it is on you, Judah, because you are going along with your king in all of this. And so this judgment of God will not be isolated to the house of Ahaz. You will all experience this and the consequences will be grave. And, and so in verses five through eight, Isaiah paints this very poetic picture to try to help illustrate in their minds what they're doing and how they're looking at the situation in their support of Ahaz and Ahaz's strategy. He brings up the the description of a quiet stream. He speaks of the waters of Shiloh. And he says to Judah, you you don't want the quiet stream. In other words, if, if you can picture it this way, the people of Judah and Ahaz have been given this idea from Isaiah that they are just to wait. Quiet, peaceful, not shaking like leaves, standing firm, waiting for God to act. And and, and so he pictures it for them as the waters of Shiloh, a nice, quietly flowing stream, nice brook, a little picnic lunch, settle down, trusting God, we're all at peace. The problem is the people of Judah don't want that. They want a mighty river. They don't want Syria and Israel to show up and see them just sitting calmly, trusting God. They want to show Syria and Israel, we'll take you on. We're stronger than you. We're a mighty river. We can fight you. And so that's the call to Assyria. That's really what he's doing here is their mentality is we need power. We need strength for strength. And so that's why we're going to the Assyrians empire and trusting them instead of trusting you you're setting us down by a quiet brook and telling us to wait there and trust you we're going and getting the forces of the mighty river and that mighty river will come at them and that'll scare them and they'll back down but they didn't account for this the little stream and the mighty river are all in the hands of who god yahweh who controls the the flow it's, it's Yahweh who's still in control. And, and so the, the, the problem, the, the thing they're not seeing is that the mighty river is still an instrument in the hands of God and, and still acting at the commands of God. And so for as strong as the king of Assyria and his army seemed, he was not the ultimate master. God is. Should remind you of Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. That's the that's the picture here. You think, you think you can resort to the river and then you somehow control the river with your money or your requests? God says, no, Assyria is an instrument in my hands. And that river will flow where I say that it flows. And what verses 7 and 8 describe is the people of Judah getting much more than they bargained for because one day that mighty river that they trusted for their rescue now begins to overflow its banks and it is now pouring in on them. And the same river they thought was their protection is now about to drown them. If you pick up in the middle of verse 7, Isaiah 8, verse 7... Speaking of this river, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel, a little reminder to them. Assyria will come like a flood, but, but God's grace still prevails. We're seeing this theme throughout Isaiah of judgment and yet mercy from God. And when he says to them, Syria will flood you. And just when you get to that point that the water has risen to your neck, if you've ever been in a, a drowning kind of situation and the waters, you feel like it's rising. He says, when it gets to your neck, as far as I will allow it to go. We'll get to that story in chapters 36 and 37 when there's a king who actually trusts the Lord and and God actually does this when the Assyrian Empire comes and lays siege to Jerusalem. But that doesn't take away the very fact that the promise stands. You wanna devise your schemes and come up with your strategies and and, and get your earthly help and not trust me and foolishly leave me out. In the end, your godless strategies will leave you shattered. Shattered. That's his warning to them here in chapter eight. You will be shattered because of this, because you have rejected what is the most crucial truth that he continues to remind them of, and that is the simple promise of Emmanuel. God with us. Trust the one, your Lord who is with you. Don't don't trust in your own understanding on this. Don't trust in your own strategy. Obey him and and his law. Wait on him. I'd encourage you to read the rest of chapter 8. I'm not going to do it just for the sake of time today, but I'll, I'll summarize it this way. What Isaiah then says to the people of Judah is you are looking everywhere for answers. You are trying to explain things through conspiracies. You are fearing things that you shouldn't fear. You are even inquiring of those who claim to communicate with the dead. You are turning in every wrong direction you can possibly turn. Isaiah probably would have had a few things to say about the internet if he were here with us today and and where we look sometimes, right? But his warning to them is you are trusting in these things. You're putting your hope in all of these things and not God. And then the shocking part of it Verse 21, and when they they will pass through the land, this is the outcome of all of their inquiring, even from those who they think will talk to the dead. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. Here's Here's the amazing part of it is they've not only looked everywhere else for answers but God and have refused to submit to God and obey him and trust his law. They've looked everywhere else and relied on everything else. And then when it didn't work and there were no answers and it was all crashing down around them, they looked up to heaven and they held God in contempt. How dare you do this to us, God? I mean, that that sort of mentality is... Is, is still very much in existence in our world today. That same idea that says, I don't worship him, I don't need to thank him for the very life and breath I have, but when things go wrong in the world, I sure can shake my fist at God. I sure can blame your God for, for whatever that is. And it is indicative, as he says in the last verse of this chapter, of a people who are utterly blind in their own spiritual darkness. They will look to the earth. They've turned their faces upward in contempt. They will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Can I just encourage you at some level in this verse? I, I, I think it should prompt a measure of mercy in our hearts. There's a justice here that is right and true that we should hold to. That those who would reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who would reject God's gracious salvation through the sacrifice of his own son in our place, deserve God's wrath. There is justice and we know that that is true. But also this verse reminds us, not minimizing that truth of justice, but reminding us that those unbelievers we know it describes as being engulfed in a kind of spiritual darkness and thick blindness. They, they have, they have so driven themselves further and further from God that they are lost and hopeless and dismal. And that is ultimately the the aim of where that path leads. It just leads further into darkness and lostness. and, And ironically, it makes them angry and discouraged, but still not enough to bow the knee to God. As we've seen before, this is not the end of the story. This is not where Isaiah stops. This is one of those chapter breaks that's probably not ideal because we go right from the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness to verse one of chapter nine. Let me just read the first seven verses and we'll be done there this morning. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this if we were really musical this would be a hallelujah chorus portion right now wouldn't it the, um, this This is another one of those passages right that we we, we look at at, at at advent season and and I hope that seeing it in its broader context from Chapter seven gives you an even deeper appreciation for the majesty and the glory of what Isaiah is presenting here it 's no coincidence that in nine one he speaks of this Sun dawning on Zebulun and Naphtali, those were the ancient names of those tribes, sons of Jacob, that that really made up what was in the New Testament times, Galilee which is where the ministry of Jesus begins. Nazareth and Cana and Capernaum, the place where the the light first begins to shine. Also, Zebulun and Naphtali happened to be the first places that when the Assyrian Empire came in and began to capture Israel, those were the first parts to fall into the, the darkness of the Assyrian Empire. And now upon them is coming this light. He is clearly here talking about a king. We see that when he talks about rule and the throne of David. But there will be no mistaking the fact that this is not Hezekiah or some other son who is to come, that this one is a son who is also mighty God, everlasting father, that this one is unique. This is the Messiah. This is Isaiah telling the Jewish people that there is coming a day of rescue when this sunrise will dawn and the yoke and the oppression of the enemy will be defeated and a ruler will come who will establish and spread peace. And it starts with a child who is born. It starts again with what had to be perplexing to his audience of a child who is born. We, remember Isaiah, we need a mighty river. We We need forces here. We don't need kids. And yet he says this child will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. I want to come back to those names in just a moment as we close in prayer, but there's just one more thing I just want you to see in these closing verses. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Verse 7, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this a lot of what we've been looking at here has has had a lot to do with kings and and rulers and those deciding what it is that brings about peace and what protects people and and what's the right thing to do. And he's saying this savior will be a king. And one of the things you need to know about this one who is coming is government, power, dominion will be on his shoulders. This word for government that's used here is the only time in the Old Testament that this Hebrew word is used. Speaks of rule or dominion. It is a clear term to say this one who is coming will have a firm dominion. And he says in verse 7, of the increase of his dominion and of peace, there will be no end. This king, when he comes, will establish his lordship. And his lordship will continue to increase and expand until it consumes all, until everything is under his lordship. If you've been watching the news lately and seeing the sadness and all of the tragedy in Ukraine, one of the things you've undoubtedly seen are the maps and the maps will show these red areas where the Russians are moving further and further in and the land is being more and more engulfed. And and I would suggest to you that that the picture Isaiah is, is painting here is of all of humanity and God's creation in an increasing manner being taken over by the lordship and the rule and the dominion of the wonderful counselor and mighty God and prince of peace. And he is saying to us, rest in him. Because this one comes not with tanks or warfare, but it is the increase of his rule and of what? Peace, that there will be no end. He comes not only bringing peace, establishing peace, but bringing peace between us and God. Ultimately, what Jesus Christ brings to you is peace. It doesn't mean that there is not justice, that there is not judgment on those who oppose him, but ultimately the Prince of Peace will rule over all of creation. And as Philippians says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord and he will establish his peace. I would say to you this morning, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as savior, then the dominion of his lordship extends over your whole life. It, it's, not a, it, it, it's a growing thing in the sense of we're being sanctified and being changed, but I would submit to you that the Lord, that Jesus Christ needs to be Lord over your thoughts, your heart, your desires, your, your job, your relationships, your activities, whatever you do, Jesus Christ seeks to be Lord over all of that and has every right to be Lord over that. The increase of his government, we can look at our world and we can plead and long for the day as John did. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we want to see your rule over all the world. But I would submit to you that it begins with the church here and his rule over us and our trust in his dominion. Jesus Christ, as Isaiah had said earlier, one of the passages we didn't read is either the the rock of your refuge you hide in him and trust in him and stand firm on him or he is the stone that causes stumbling and falling. Uh, everyone will face that. They will really run to him to, in refuge or they will stumble over him. Let's close in prayer. If you bow your heads, I, I just want to, what I'm gonna do is just in the beginning of this prayer is just remind you of these four names for Jesus and just let you pray quietly where you are. I'll, I'll give you just some thoughts. As as we think about these, just to begin our prayer time, Lord, you are the wonderful counselor. You are the one who is eager to give wisdom, good wisdom, wonderful wisdom, wise knowledge to help us. And so I'm I'm just going to encourage you, just pray quietly where you are, that you would be receptive, open to God's wisdom, responsive to it, eager for it, wanting to hear it and obey it. Mighty God, divine, ultimate, supreme power, and the power in particular for for defeating evil and establishing righteousness. And so as we pray, Jesus Christ, our mighty God, let us pray that we would be surrendered to him, that his power we would see as in need of, for him to transform us, to to work his power through us, that we would grow in him and be more like Christ. Everlasting Father, the the one who is the Holy Lord of hosts and God of creation, Jesus, who is the King of kings, loves his people as a father loves his children. I just encourage you prayerfully just to thank him for that, to to just recognize again how deeply you are loved by Jesus and that you would desire to, to please him. And finally, Prince of Peace, there's praise in that, that he brings peace for us between us and God, that he brings peace that we can have relationally with others. Let me encourage you here as you pray and giving thanks, but also be praying that, that if there are areas in your heart that are just persistently unsettled circumstances that are causing you to, to struggle with peace, that this would be an opportunity to come before the Prince of Peace, Ask him to help you in this, to to stand firm in faith and trust him and for him to establish and increase his peace in you. Lord Jesus, this... This is such a clear and wonderful way in Isaiah, pointing us directly to you and to seeing your rule and your reign and to desiring the, the increase of your reign. And, and I pray this morning that if there's anyone here or listening online who has struggled in this very area of, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to believe in Jesus, but I'm not ready to acknowledge him as as who he is and and surrender to one who calls himself Lord. I pray that today you would gloriously fill their hearts with the the wonderful joy of submission to the gospel and to the Savior, that you would show them the great peace that is found in in saying, Jesus, you, you be ruler of my life. I seek to follow your word and your will and your will be done. Lord, I pray that you would show them that in that that sweet surrender before you, that repentance and faith, that there is a loving, everlasting Father who longs to powerfully begin that work of transforming and giving counsel and and, and doing just a, a work that will ultimately be brought to climax in that day when we are in your presence. Lord, we pray that as a church, we would be a people who would not trust you in words alone but that we would be doers of the word help our trust to be sincere firm real help us to act on our faith help us to wait when we need to wait to press forward in the work of making disciples but to do so in a in a posture of submission to you help us when we are are trying to do it all ourselves and trying to run astray from your truth to to enjoy, again, the beauty of repentance and forgiveness that you so freely give. Lord, thank you that in the name of Jesus Christ, there is the forgiveness of sins and that we can be at peace with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.